there was so much more love than hate that happened. And if we actually documented this, I think that would be a really important lesson to be passing on. What what did we do so well? Because most of what we did was incredibly heroic, incredible problem solving, whether it's in businesses, in schools. I mean, the stories are of heroism. Hey folks, and welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that familiar voice was, of course, Dr. Amy Acton, who led our state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. Though Acton will, of course, be well known to our listeners, I have to tell you that I think this interview is one of the best we've done. While Acton, of course, reflects on her experience in 2020 and beyond, she also offers thoughtful reflection on the state of public health here in Ohio, what she sees as something of a crisis in social connectivity, and our states need to start thinking seriously about grieving and meaningfully chronicling our experience with the pandemic. In a way, talking with Dr. Acton brings us full circle. Listeners will remember that in 2020, unsure of what I could do to contribute in some small way, I did what I could, and I just started cranking out episodes on all sorts of aspects of life in Ohio during the pandemic, almost weekly. From gun violence and depression to health disparities within Ohio's immigrant communities, struggles in our prisons, vaccines, and more. You might want to check out our archive at prognosisohio.com if you want a snapshot of what those episodes were like. To be honest, in many ways, I think I would personally find it too traumatic to do so, but I'm glad we were able to use this platform to shine a light on different aspects of pandemic life in Ohio. It was during that time that listenership to this show started to climb, so I was glad people seemed to find value in what we were doing. Suffice to say, we only scratched the surface in our conversation today, but with so much darkness in the news these days, I know listeners are going to appreciate what Dr. Acton has to say. It's exactly the kind of conversation I hoped to have when I started this podcast. Before turning to my conversation with Dr. Acton, here's the standard pitch. Please hit the subscribe button in your app and think about sharing this episode with friends. If you can, throw us a few bucks through Patreon, which you can get to by clicking through at prognosisohio.com. We're working hard over here on this completely volunteer effort, but we need your support. Okay, here's the interview. Dr. Amy Acton, thanks for joining us on Prognosis Ohio, and it's an honor having you in the WCB studios here today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you, Dan. So there's a lot to talk about, uh, but uh, let's let's focus in on a couple key parts. It's been more than three years (laughs) since you stepped down as director of the Ohio Department of Health, and I I hope you've had some time to reflect and process, even though that work is probably still beginning Mm -hmm. in many ways. But I want to ask you, you what can you see now about the first few months of of your work during the COVID-19 pandemic in particular, with proverbial 2020 hindsight, uh, (laughs) that you couldn't fully see then? That is just such an interesting question for me. You know, my work on COVID actually began in um, very end of December 19. Folks don't realize, I think they got to know me around March, but we really had recognized something, something big was coming in January. So that six months of running that beginning of the COVID responses, it's etched in my brain in a way, almost hourly. It's so strange. And then time after that, these three years have been, I, when you say three years, I can hardly believe it. Yeah. And I, 
there's so much history there. That's why I've been a big advocate for why we need to study it. But I can tell you that I'm learning new things every single day, things that happened back during that period, a better understanding of things going on globally. I think it's almost like a big puzzle, and more and more of the science comes out, more and more analysis like you have done in your book that even fills out the picture for me more. But I don't think I will rest or fully understand everything I experienced until there really is some sort of formal 9-11 style commission, Mm -hmm. which so many have been asking for, sort of an after-action report, uh, which hasn't happened yet. What would the appropriate body be to do that kind of work? It really should happen both at the national level, at a global level, quite honestly, but at a national level for sure. Uh, And there are many, some senators have introduced bills. It's still a highly politicized topic, but I think we are at risk of losing so much if we don't pause to take a deep reflective look back. Many people don't know that there was a pandemic playbook and it was created by George W. Bush after 9-11. He read John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, Mm -hmm. the study of the 1918 pandemic. And Homeland Security realized that the gravest security risk to our country, like if you took the virus and the death and disease aside, the gravest security risk to our country remains a pandemic or biologic weapon. And this playbook was passed from president to president. That's what you saw us executing here in Ohio. And I have so many thoughts both from what we learned, finally implementing it, but so many more things I would add to make it different. And many of us would give as feedback. Here in Ohio, we need to do that. It's of note that I've never, ever, even during the pandemic, was not brought in to testify or since Mm -hmm. uh, to really analyze what happened here in Ohio. So I think in Ohio... When the dust settles a little bit and it's a little less political, I would highly recommend we stop, pause, learn. There's actually many amazing innovations we did that we also at risk of losing. Yeah, and if we don't document these things, we we lose them. You know, it strikes me, you know, during the pandemic, (laughs) um, while you were busy doing your thing in those months, we had Rick Hodges, your predecessor at at ODH on, to talk about the Ebola moment. You know, and really, Rick's, by his own admission, it was kind of a moment compared to to COVID-19. But yet we learned a lot. And, you know, the ability to, to learn and then build probably made a difference in, in, in where we were at that moment. And yet, you know, missing opportunities to learn are really unforgivable when yeah. we have such high stakes in public health. Yes. And, and as a nod to Rick Hodges, the former director of the Ohio Department of Health, that I think it was a three-week period. People don't know that. We had a little Ebola scare in Ohio, a, a woman coming back from having worked in, in Africa, lived in Texas, but came home to Cleveland to mm-hmm. try on a wedding dress. And we went into an emergency operating uh, mode that we have for disasters in the state. People don't know there's a hidden little bunker that looks a lot like a NASA kind of place. And I remember when I was onboarding for the position, the staff talking about, oh my gosh, those three weeks, you're in this bunker with windowless rooms, you're in high stress situation. We were in that mode for at least six months. 
So you try to see the, the effect on the team, all the while trying not to get the disease so that we could keep running the emergency. It is an unprecedented war, yeah. basically a war. So much of what happens in public health is unknown to the public. Yes. It's kind of designed this way uh, because you know it's also a paradox. And you talked about this in in 2020 fairly publicly, when things are going right, <laughs> nobody even knows that you're there, right? Yes. And then you have to fight for funding because you're doing such a good job that nobody thinks that there's a problem. But when there are challenges, you're in the spotlight, and you can become the target of blame or even worse. So, yeah. what do you think people would be surprised to learn about in those early months? Things that they, if they had known, especially when things got really nasty, that might have changed their thinking or even right. our behavior as a state. Well, we have to understand that even in 1918, I had pictures from Cleveland of anti-mask societies. You know, this was going to be a difficult, difficult thing for all of us to get our head around, myself included. That said, my very first testimony, you know, I had a year as director of health before the pandemic hit. My very first testimony, you go in in front of the legislature and you're supposed to read your budget, which was like about $1.3, $1.6 billion budget in public health. It's a bunch of numbers and zeros and nobody pays attention. And I remember thinking, how are they ever going to fund something they don't even know what it is? And I think most of us don't know what public health is. So I went off script for the first time, <laughs> and I said, you know, when I do my job right, when I knock it out of the park, it is the silent victories of public health. You don't see it, and therefore you don't fund it. What people don't realize is, look, I'm a physician, but I'm also a physician in preventive medicine in addition to my master's in public health. And everything I learned in med school accounts for only about five of the 30 years we live longer in the last century. When my grandfather was born in 1900, the average age life expectancy was in the 48, 48 to 50. Some people luckily lived longer, but that was on average. We think of people like Thoreau did all his great work and died by the age of 48. Of those 30 years, five of those years are due to the really high technology things that we all need some of the time, but the other 25 years came from things that we can only solve collectively. Mm -hmm. uh, clean water, safe food, child labor laws, highway safety laws, how planes fly. And not only that, but the health, the things that affect our health don't just live in the Department of Health. The governor had me sit in on every budget because health was everywhere yeah. in all the cabinets. It was in transportation budget. It was in commerce budget. It is obviously in Medicaid and mental health and aging. And so these things that we all don't see are absolutely essential conditions for us to be well. And we got one of the best budgets in history, in near history, did some great work, even with this legislature that we see as so politicized. Because once I met with every legislator, turned out they loved something in public health. They just didn't know it was named that. Yeah. They might like home visiting. They might like getting rid of lead and pipes for children in Cleveland. They cared about all sorts of issues like harmful algal blooms that were closing their lake yeah. in their community. Um, so it's here and we don't see it. Even as you're talking, as a political <laughs> scientist who studied a lot of American political history, 
when I hear you the, use the word collective, I know there's a certain group of people that just, just hear wins. that word in a certain <laughs> way. And yet it just means doing things together. Yeah. And I think this was, in a way, some of the translational work you did and that we talked about you doing at that time of that this had to be something we did as a group, as a collective. Yeah. Uh, we can do hard things. There were some slogans yes. that were kind of, I mean, on chalk all over yes. the city on the sidewalks. So part of what we need to do is this translational work of right. de-escalating these right. words and say, look, like, yes, we, we need stoplights in our cities and we need them to work. And that's a collective thing. Our right. sewer systems and water yes. lines, like not sexy stuff, that's, but that's, <laughs> really matter. And that's not individual <laughs> yeah. responsibility. Right. Right? right. And even schools and, you know, there, there's all sorts of work we need to do together. And, and I think that as I'm listening to you, I'm just hearing the kind of politics mm-hmm. and feeling that tension of like, why do some people hear these really basic words yeah. with such charge? Well, you know, to me, it's so fascinating. And in a, a, a strange way, nothing has made our interdependence. You know, we want all the freedoms to choose, but it's undeniable how our entire world is interconnected. And in a strange way, nothing could have shown this more than COVID. And it's a moment with the right leadership to actually recognize we were all facing a common enemy. If aliens invaded from outer space, we would all be, we're on the world team. Yeah. I was in the White House the last week of February with the best folks who advised the president, including Mick Mulvaney, his chief of staff. Um, I happened to represent my position for the whole Midwest. Um, people who had served several presidents were shaking in their shoes. And I said to Mick Mulvaney when it became my turn, as we went around the room giving our best advice, the stock market had crashed for the second time. We were on that brink of what I think is war. And I said, this is the higher angels moment. Please tell the president we need him. We need that FDR, Winston Churchill type narrative right now. This was a chance for us to lead the whole world through a crisis. The reason this is the gravest security risk, we saw supply chains get decimated. Mm. We didn't have a moxicillin. We didn't have the machinery that could make the inner layer of a 3M mask in this country anymore. You began to see how a childcare provider, you know, people that are older and at risk, they're not at work, you don't have childcare, you can't go to your job, your supply chain is messed up in your business, what happened in a prison or a nursing home impacted our whole community. Mm. Every single thing about COVID was teaching us the humble truth of how very, how a fabric of our world is so woven together. We need one another. And I'll say this, the Surgeon General of the United States recently put out an advisory on human connection. And he is saying that isolation and disconnection, so much science, and this is happening all over the world, shows that all the epidemics we face, whether they be heart disease and stroke, you know, diseases of despair, anxiety, depression, violence, opiate epidemics, we're seeing road rage in record numbers, All of these things at their core, at their scientific and physiologic core, relate to the need, the basic need we have to feel in relationship to one another. And if enough of us do the right thing, 
most of the time. We don't ever all get it right all of the time. We all get through. And Ohioans did record things. They did flatten the curve. And I actually saw most of us doing the right thing. So you went from being involved in every aspect of Ohio's pandemic response on a seven-day-a-week basis, and you yeah. know, we've talked a little bit about just how exhausting that process was, but yeah. you were doing the yeah. hard work, to watching the state adapt and struggle to respond to COVID's ups and downs in the subsequent months, uh, especially in the summer of 2021 when the really big spike came. And right. What was it like you know, uh, for you to kind of once you're out of the position to sort of process it from the distance, I'm sure you had tremendous empathy for the people doing the work because the work is so hard. But, you know, as COVID fatigue, as they called it, set in, did your view of the pandemic start to change? Was that a lesson for you too? Could you even watch it? I mean, were you kind of like, you know, just, was was it too hard in some ways? How how was that for you? So, you know, Folks know when I stepped down, ultimately it came to, this was July of 2020, so still early before we had a vaccine, before the Delta wave. The legislature had put such pressure on orders that just weren't medical, things I I could sign my name to with the science. Only the health director can play that role. But I, I never stopped working on the pandemic. I continued to quietly advise the governor I went back to the Columbus Foundation, which is where I'd worked uh, before I got a call out of the blue from a governor I did not know to serve. And I, I stayed out of the media per se, but in in November of 2020, I did a New Yorker article because I realized that the worst of the pandemic, all the numbers we had predicted were likely to happen after the presidential election during that transition period, which is kind of a difficult time. Mm. And, and they did. Uh, that's when we saw the 12,000-plus cases a day here in Ohio. We're now close to 10 as we speak again. Mm-hmm. And the article was about this need for leaders, that their words matter. You don't get to pick no war. And, and by 21, in July of 21, I was texting back and forth with Ron Klein, the president's chief of staff, saying the same thing. The lesson I had learned, and maybe by even being able to step back, I could see it even more clearly, is the type of leadership you need in a crisis that is of a humanitarian scale, scope, and duration such as this isn't your normal political response. Mm. You know, political uh, sort of operative world is excellent. I mean, these folks are killer good at what they do. In many ways, people would be surprised to see that on both sides of the aisle, they often work together. It's, you hear a lot of rhetoric, but these folks are built for that game. But what we're really talking about is a war that was never named a war. And you're going to get to do, like, do you want to do a Vietnam kind of war? Do you want to do a World War II? But you're going to have to deal with this, just like we're going to deal with it in this wave. And it's very politically hard. And by even 21, it had become hard for the president, President Biden. So I've seen it on both sides of the aisle. The masks had been pulled off in May of 21. I, I believe that was a political decision. I, My understanding and being on calls, that wasn't a CDC-led scientific decision. 
which further demonized, you know, a very basic tool that surgeons use that, you know, in Asia, it's commonplace to not cough on one another. So by the time Delta was approaching, it was really go time to finally take control of this um, and try to wrestle it from the political rhetoric into the making meaning like an FDR would have done way. In countries where they were able to do that, I thought some leaders like Angela Merkel, uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, they surrounded themselves with more than virologists and epidemiologists. I think that's one of the big keys to this playbook. They had medical anthropologists, theologians, supply chain experts, military folks. They just realized that this was a whole of society thing and that leading as politically hard as it is needs master storytellers who help us process the unthinkable something i've been doing some work on around here and i've had the fortune good fortune of, of giving some talks to public health folks around the state it is striking how little we think about health communications in public health and but not that we think about it uh, yeah. not enough but we're certainly not funded and resourced correctly to really know how to respond in a, in a kind of crisis right. sort of way that that's called for by these kinds of moments i'll speak to communications in a second but if you remember very early you talked about the memes yeah and I was approached by Ryan Vessler, the Ownage of Homage t-shirt company. Mm. He came to me and he said something like, you're trending. <laughs> and Did you know what that meant? And, and I, well, what's a joke in my family because I can't even work the remote on our TV. I, I think I had 55,000 Twitter followers and I've still never tweeted once. So, you know, and, and I'm running a, you know, an emergency response. So I, I didn't always have that whole sense of what was happening. But I remember saying to him, it was going to be, he wanted to do something for youth homeless which I care about so much and he just wanted to help as a business person and he was going to do this Dr. Amy t-shirt was his first thought and and I said to him you're going to know me for like two weeks it ended up being a little longer than two weeks but essentially this is so true I said before this is over there are going to be so many heroes from every frontline worker to every nursing home person, to every prison person, and, you know, hospitals and schools and businesses. And that was exactly the problem we face. You cannot solve all of these problems. Many of them you can't fix. But what you have to do is be with people and give them, and this is one of the things we did, and again, I credit the governor with this, we made a promise from the very beginning at that Arnold Classic decision that we are going to tell you the truth. When I came back from that White House and begging Mick Mulvaney to go to the president, he was gone two weeks later, by the way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I came back and the governor listened. He knew from being a senator what this meant. He was good friends with Paul Farmer, brand partners in health, a global health doctor, one of my heroes, yeah. recently died. He took this seriously. He became a leader amongst governors, Republican governors. They reached across the aisle to Democratic governors. We all rode. So I'm very blessed because what happened was this became a relay race. And that's where the Not All Heroes Wear Capes t-shirt was made. Because it was really about all of us using the information we could give you as honestly Again, sometimes very disappointing and brutal information we don't want to hear. That's the hardest, riskiest part of leadership is telling people things they don't always want to hear, but allowing everyone to solve problems. And that was what was beautiful in Ohio. 
is everyone started rowing. And I'm telling you, that was far greater force than the hate in those early days. I love how you talk about truthfulness and the importance of looking to people and saying, we're not going to lie to you because there were certainly some people lying to some people around this country about these things. And yet science, and I would love for you to to talk to this for a moment. Science is tricky because the science was evolving and changing. Yes. And when science changes, like I think about the masks, I think about what we did with the schools, uh, even vaccines, no, science changes, but that doesn't mean that that you're being lied to. That means that the science is evolving. Right. And, and I think we really struggled with that because fundamentally competence with science is not something we have done very well in our public education systems or as a society. And there you are saying, we're going to follow the science, but then when new information comes to light or a new study comes out or right. whatever, you know, th- then you have to go to the people and say... Actually, we've learned something new, and that thing we were doing before, we're not doing that. We're doing something right. slightly different. So how do you maintain trust through that shifting ground of science? You know, again, it would have been so wonderful to have had those voices be at the federal level where they should be. Even the World Health Organization early on, I had to Google the word pandemic as a global health professor because I couldn't understand why we weren't using the right word. So you have to begin that relationship right from the beginning. But science, and again, I think we were very, first of all, let me take a step back. We do study communications in public health, and, and there's a beautiful book by on uh, crisis communications by Josh Sharfstein at uh, Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And it's the seas of crisis communication are be clear, be consistent, be credible, be compassionate. There are all these things. But like I said, very often we have one hurricane Katrina, the whole country mobilizes around that. We've never had the whole world go on fire at the same time where we can't deploy our nurses from here to go help you there. We've never had to explain something this complicated and the science is evolving. It's very humbling as a physician, I know, that it is an art and a science. Being a great diagnostician, knowing that you can't always, even as a doctor, fix everything or know every answer. I mean, that's just a humble truth. We're ever learning, ever learning, um, even in science. But the fact that you could trust in people that if you gave them that information, they can take it. I think people can tolerate a lot more ambiguity than we think they can. Now, we have to understand the governor did not script me. That is unprecedented, I think, in political life. Mm -hmm. Every press conference you saw, those were very spontaneous, often a note card with words jotted down. There's a funny story of how I was supposed to go to a training to learn all the spin and things you do. the The CDC provides a training on health communications. But I missed it. I ended up tripping in the fall of uh, 19, tripped over my dog gate and missed the training and might have been even more afraid to just talk to folks the way I would talk to them as a physician or even as a mom. Um, The governor let me do that. We gained that trust early on. And I think it's really important to say, when we look back now, people don't understand that we needed to buy time. We had reopening plans starting in March of 2020. We had a team working on reopening. But the mortality rate 
people, this is so crucial for people to understand, and, and the frontline providers can tell you, if you ended up in the hospital in March of 2020, so many people died, and it was not pretty. As a doctor, when I'm out in the field, if I feel like I can get you in an intensive care unit and get you on a ventilator and pump oxygen into you, I'm going to be able to stabilize you. You, put, you could turn that ventilator up to 100%, and people died, suffocated right in front of you. I can't tell you how traumatic that is to watch, to not be able to help as a provider. The mortality rate I've seen in some studies, 40 to 50%. Yeah. In March, by June, it had dropped down to five. We were learning. We were learning rapidly around the world how to deal with this disease. People died of diseases that weren't COVID. Hospitals were overwhelmed. People had heart attacks that were a really side effect of COVID. We're learning more and more now. Mm-hmm. So this this really was, you don't you don't want to throw those emergency breaks. The pandemic playbook was there for the worst of the worst, but what we did in those months bought the time for us to figure out collectively how to stabilize, how to treat, how to run our businesses effectively, and how to do it. And I can tell you, people did it. And when they didn't do it, it was a direct political assault to to not not do it. You've already noted the kind of shamefulness, in my view, of not doing a formal deep dive to really synthesize what we've learned and to really chronicle it, you know. And and I think that's something that's coming out of this conversation that we need to really, we need to push on more. But surely, as 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 you're noting, we learned a lot, you know, and and, you know the hospitals learned a lot, and various actors all around the state and all different levels of government and private industry or whatever. When you kind of do your reflection on this, do you feel like there are tangible lessons that are being implemented despite the fact that we haven't necessarily had the kind of leadership or the the high level sort of uh, look back? And, and I'm also curious how you understand this simmering politics. Like it's my sense, and tell me if this is different than your sense, that our General Assembly kind of learned some of the wrong lessons. I mean, yes. it, it, in some ways, yes. it's actually going to be more difficult to respond to the next pandemic Absolutely than even what, what you were facing. So, yeah. so, so I'm pretty glass half empty. I talk to a lot of <laughs> optimists on this show. Oh. I, but I, where, where do you sit w- w- with that general question? Well, you know, I think, first of all, we're still very unmoored. The consequences of the pandemic are all around us still. And this is not, you know... It, it was five years out from 9-11 that I think we could begin to process things. So I'm not sure that our ability to reflect and reflect with some perspective isn't yet ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So that gives me great hope. If the only physician who has testified, testified to magnetize spoons mm-hmm. and recently lost her license, yes. this is politics. People need to understand that there was a very distinct moment in mid-April where the tides turned of 2020. And literally, our president of the United States texted, activate and liberate. Um, So I don't, I think it's important not to make light of the fact that the same folks who stormed the Capitol are the same folks who are after Gretchen Whitmer, the governor, I, the action on the dark web that was going on. Who made it very hard to find a, a replacement for you, right? After, after yeah, you this OVH. this was very real. Yeah. It was very intentional activation of militia groups in this country. Mm-hmm. 
I hate to be the one. I was an ordinary citizen before. This was not my life. Being in these worlds, I've learned a lot since by being under behind the scenes and looking under the hood. We have to reckon with this. We've allowed our people to die. Your your political party should not predict how well you're going to do if you get COVID, but there is data now showing mm -hmm. that, which is there's so much excess death, and I think we will in time see more of that. We have a responsibility as leaders. I know how I felt. I saw how the governor felt. I saw how other governors felt on both sides of the aisle. 11.7 million people, all you could think about was how to get everyone on the life raft. Mm -hmm. We do not give up, do not despair, but there was a study done in 2020 by the Academy of Arts and Sciences, bipartisan look, and what I've come to understand is this might very well be the fourth founding of our country. I mean, these are ebbs and flows. I think I grew up in a life, um, I grew up, you know, learning the lessons of the Holocaust, the civil rights era, learning my history, thinking that our world was on a constant trajectory, maybe two steps back, two steps forward, one step back of evolving equality, evolving, lifting up of more people, more and more people. But what you realize is, you know, like the beginning of our country, like Reconstruction, like the civil rights era, and like the time we're living in, it is an inflection point. And we have to continually co-create the world we want to live in. And that takes all of us in little ways from where we sit in our day-to-day -day lives. We face things that sometimes we just can't unsee. Do not deny the way I don't get pessimistic is I am absolutely sure people save one another every day in little ways that they help one another up. Don't underestimate the power of that the small things, because you can feel overwhelmed by the big things that aren't happening. Mm. And then every now and then, any one of us, I'm an ordinary person who was in a very strange inflection point in history. Sometimes you'll see something you just can't unsee, and you might find yourself in that place. But I think we all now have to understand that it is within our reach to create the conditions in which all of us can flourish. But we are going to have to work to create that. I mean, in a way, I mean, you're tapping into the political scientist in me here, but also just the citizen who loves this state. Yes. You know, you're <laughs> talking about state. civic participation. You're talking about yes. this, getting rid of this sense of hopelessness that, well, they're just going to get elected. So-and-so is just going to get elected. There's yeah. nothing I can do. Or it doesn't matter if I give testimony at the state house. They're not listening anyway. And it's true. Gerrymandering, things like this make it very hard to... It does. You know, take, to mm -hmm. get excited about democratic response, uh, responsiveness. Yes. But still, I mean, the alternative of not actually taking the time to do these things yeah. is, is unacceptable. And it is hard. Please know that there are days and stages of my life. You know, when my kids were young, I could never have done the job. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there were people who had to move their kids to other states to keep them safe while they did the job I did. There are days I crawl in bed, <laughs> pull the covers up and be, <laughs> feel what, that pessimism. And then you get up the next day and you try to find whatever it is that day presents or what it is within your reach. And so it is a time for all of us to reckon with that. Yes, there is power. Yes, there is corruption. It is big. Yeah. It is far bigger than simple old me. 
But I'm telling you, I saw Ohioans do it. The stories of love and heroism, everywhere I go in the state, I learn new stories. We need a story core to capture all of them mm-hmm. badly. I cannot tell you what most of us, we did to get one another through. We are very, very powerful together. Yeah. And that is, throughout history, is the only way we've moved our society forward. And when I do well, you do well. And when you are not doing well, COVID proved this. There is no gated community I could go live in and hide. If my hospital and I'm having a heart attack, people died of heart attacks because their ambulance had nowhere to pull into. We are all connected. Imagine, you know, I guess it would be 2019 when you got the call from the governor to, to join the cabinet. Would that yes. be right? Yeah. If you knew all this was coming, how would you have thought about that uh, call differently? I mean, I'm guessing you're going to yeah. say... I could cry just at the thought of sure. that. Sure. Um, I cannot say what an honor it was to serve. When I got the call, it came out of the blue. This is maybe a helpful story for those who might be listening. Um, I was working... I'm a physician. I've worked in every sector, global health, taught at OSU, was working at the Columbus Foundation, great place to do community work and loving my work when I got a call of the blue. And it turned out that for one hour, I was in the presence of someone who was very, very close to the governor, did not know it, doing the routine work I do every day. And it turned out to be one of his closest advisors. Mm. When he called me in, I thought this is my chance to just, I had no thought of a job. I was just like, I'll tell him all my ideas about child advocacy work I've done my whole life. And was amazed to learn how much he was thinking about the fact that Ohio has some of the worst health outcomes in the country. And begged my boss, Doug Cradler, <laughs> poor man, um, that please, like, I just want to go serve and please keep my job for me. I hope to come back home someday and live my normal life. Be back in a few months. Yeah, be back. <laughs> and and because I love my work here in yeah. the community, I would serve a million times over. Again, my not serving was purely a matter of, I think the risk in serving is you have to have a very strong compass um, very fortunately, I feel like I, I had that. As a physician, you take an oath to do no harm. And I, I think this is a time sometimes people are going to have to risk the kind of leadership, including when you might even lose your job. And we see people over the world lose their life yeah. serving us. So, um, again, it makes me tear up because... Um, it was the privilege of a lifetime, and I hope to continue to give from wherever I sit alongside all the people I worked with as long as I can. And also to the, you know, the students and other professionals. Yes, get listening. in it. You never know <laughs> who you're with. You never, you, you never know. <laughs> you really don't. And um, Well, I, I, I know you've already, you just said, you know, you've, that, that made you tear up a little bit. So let me just ask the last question, which is a hard question, I think, in some ways. Yeah. There are very few easy questions here. And, no. Uh, but, you know, more than 42,000 deaths, more than 3.5 million cases and rising, you know, uh, we've been through a lot in this state. And, you know, I want to ask you, first of all, 
what would it look like to adequately grieve? I mean, yes. Because I, I do think we need a statewide, national, and as you mentioned, you know, international, global. We, we need to grieve. We need to mourn. And, yeah. I, and I feel like we haven't really honored not just those who died, but those who are suffering from long COVID uh, and also the people who did yeah. the work, yeah. right? So what would what would that look like? What kind of things do you think are, you know, we do, should we be thinking about doing now? Yes. Is it a memorial? Is it a, you mentioned a StoryCorps-like kind of project. That's wonderful. But how do you think about yeah. adequate grieving? Well, you know, I think it's a very natural thing when we've had this collective trauma, in some ways moral injury, which is a very fascinating concept I've been reading a lot about lately, because so many of us saw things, people on the front lines, people have seen things that at some level, whether it's conscious or not, have not sat well, have violated parts of us, truths maybe we hold dear, things we believed in. We see the fragility of our world. It's hard to accept that even now we still don't have medicines, but there are also things we can learn. There were innovations that have come out of this. There are benefits. Um, we discovered nature mm-hmm. and the importance of that and the healing power of it. We just, we're onboarding. Our economy is changing as we're learning how to bring back a different kinds of industry to our state. But what we really will need to do is mourn this and we need leaders who help us frame that. Writers and artists, I can't tell you enough the role artists played in our response. Our mailrooms filled up with things Ohioans made, their artifacts all over the state that were done during that time. I think the understanding what happened in the science and very many disciplines truly chewing on it so that we can say here's what we would do different here's what we have yet to fix here's the great things we did because there's things we should celebrate that had happened i do think memorials are a very important part of this there is one in a state park now um, but I think in all our communities, um, we're going to need to have symbols of this time. And again, the story people would learn is not of the hate. There was so much more love than hate that happened. And if we actually documented this, I think that would be a really important lesson to be passing on. What what did we do so well? Because most of what we did was incredibly heroic, incredible problem solving, whether it's in businesses and schools. I mean, the stories are of heroism. Mm -hmm. And then make meaning out of that for how we engage all the the next things we face in life or how we even live our own lives. So meaning making is probably one of the most important tasks we do. And that is not a Democrat or Republican thing. That is an all of us thing. All of us need that. And I sincerely hope and I would, I personally would love to be a part of us making meaning. Well, you mentioned before the core mission, the core commitment of a physician is to do no harm. That's the Hippocratic yeah. charge. <laughs> you did good, right? And, and I think that's something that yeah. we need to take a moment to thank you for. And um, what happens next is up to us. But I, I think you're right. The media tends to do the if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. 
but the love and the goodness and yes. um, all that's a great reminder for, for listeners and I think that will take us forward so it was a pleasure talking with you Dr. Thank Amy Acton you. thanks for joining us thank you so much it's wonderful to be here So there it is, folks. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Acton as much as I did. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests or topics or ways we can improve our show. Speaking of improving the show, to do that, we need your support. Consider chipping in through our Patreon site, which is linked from prognosisohio.com. But even if you can't or you just won't, please just tell your friends about the show. It really helps. Okay, be well, and thanks for listening.